so many things to get to. There's a Toronto Police Board meeting at 11 this morning. There's federal regulations about uh, zero emission vehicles coming up at 11. So it all leads up to there. We're very happy to have in uh, Chloe Brown, policy analyst, run for mayor twice as well. And we love getting her opinions on our show. It's great to have you on, Chloe. Thanks for the time. Morning. How are you? I'm decent enough. And you? Good, thank you. Wonderful. And Steve Pakin joins us now, uh, who is, of course, host of TVO's The Agenda, which returns in full form, full force in January. From your lips to God's ears. You hope? That's the plan? <laughs> That's the plan. That is the plan. Okay. Uh, fantastic. Well, I'm, by the way, I'm uh, I'm getting tons of texts uh, debating. Uh, I made the huge mistake of even mentioning Abraham Lincoln. Can we just talk about how long the movie was and where Daniel Day-Lewis has been since then? That was a long, that should have been a rental, Steve. I sat there in the theater, no <laughs> intermission. I went. To see, my dad took me to see Gandhi in 1982, and there was an intermission. So you can step out, get popcorn, a soda, nothing for three hours and 19 minutes of Lincoln. Nothing. You know, you're, you're just so representative, Greg, of the younger generation <laughs> who have no ability to hold I, focus and keep your attention for more than 30 seconds at a time. I'm so disappointed. I thought Sally Field was a great Mary Todd Lincoln. I got to say, I think the Oscars <laughs> absolutely negated uh, her role there. She was uh, one of the great first ladies in movies of, uh, of all time. Wait till someone plays Michelle Obama 50 years from now. Then then maybe we're talking. Maybe we're talking. Uh, let's, right. let's start here. Um, Chloe, let me start with you. A big electric vehicle announcement from the federal government coming later this morning. This is what I think. I think EVs um, can be a helpful tool for reducing our use of fossil fuels. I struggle with things that are mandated. I'm not sure across. We have a really vast province, a lot of rural areas. And if you talk to people in rural areas, they're not all that jazzed. Will it be reliable? How do I charge it? It's that kind of thing. How do you think, Chloe, the mood of our friends and neighbors is on zero emission vehicles and the government saying these are the only cars we want to let you purchase 12 years from now? Like any other federal project, enforcement will be the the sticking part. Because when I think about housing, uh, you can see that the government doesn't really have a good record on enforcing its quotas to the provinces. So the feds may want this, but I don't really see it happening. We can barely afford homes with like driveways to put these cars. So I really think the government should focus on shrinking the distance for getting food. It should more densified neighborhoods it should just be looking at how it could shrink the travel distance versus just focusing on evs steve i had someone describe this to me and, and I, they were looking me dead in the eye so i don't know what this says about my fitness level the last six months they said <laughs> it's like setting a goal to lose 20 pounds but if you lose 11 or 12 you're still a lot better off like is that there are some people absolutely suggesting this is an unmakeable target 12 years from now they even want 60 percent of uh, of zero emission vehicles to be on our roads in canada in seven years that's awfully ambitious it is ambitious and i think if you're a federal government that wants to purchase societal change like this you have to make it as easy as possible my hunch is people want to do the right thing they want to clean up the environment they need some help to get there. So incentives to buy these cars, not a bad idea. But we also need the infrastructure in place to make them work. You talked about rural Ontario. Mm -hmm. You cannot be driving across vast swaths of rural or northern Ontario and not having adequate charging stations because of this thing called range anxiety, right? If people are fearful that they're going to run out of juice midway through their trip, they're not going to buy these cars. So they've got to resolve that before we can really tackle this. Chloe, when I drive around downtown or I walk downtown, I see all these massive apartment buildings, massive condos, and your point's brilliantly made because we want to we want to build density, gentle density, near transit. And when I look at 12, 14, 
16 story condominiums. I'm like, where are the where are the charging stations for all these people? Not everybody is going to have cars in those buildings. Where are we? How are we electrifying our grid to make this possible for all these people to charge their cars every night? Yeah, it's uh, just even the GO station electrification project, I think, should take more priority than forcing electric cars, because there's a lot of opportunity here to make a lot of mass movement carbon neutral, if that's the right term. Yeah, honestly, don't. As someone who does not own a car because I live between two subway stations, it's like you could actually make a lot more people more active and help us not rely on cars by bringing the things we need to our neighborhoods. So it's one of those things where it's just like, I don't know if the right approach is forcing cars down everyone's throat. Yeah, Greg, can I jump on that? Yeah, totally. We're finding out right now that so many of the new apartment buildings and condominiums being built uh, in the greater Toronto area, have almost no parking available in them at all. Uh, so I, I, I'm not fussed about this. I don't think this is going to be the big problem at all. Are we building enough charging stations in these buildings, and will we have enough power to support them? Because the reality is most of these buildings going up right now, they're close to transit, and they have very, very few parking spots anyway. Yeah, and I, I there's a cost to these. Like we, we haven't talked about this from a business model even, Steve. For the number I saw yesterday, they're going to lose $4.5 billion dollars on electric vehicle production versus sales this year. Volkswagen has scaled way back. Why? Because they're big in the Chinese market and they've found the Chinese aren't buying their products. So like you said, out of the gate, and and Chloe mentioned that too, the uh, the EV market, there's an element of coercion. People hate that word. They hate hearing about coercion or a mandate, but there's this is pretty strong coming today with mandates and coercion coming from the federal government going, this is how it's going to be, guys. Get on the get on the ship. That's why you got to make it easy for people. If you don't, if you don't, I mean, this and government has the ability and the resources to do it. You make it easy for people. People will buy in. You make it difficult and coercive. Forget it. Chloe Brown, Steve Pakin joining us on Think Tank on 640 Toronto. Chloe, I want to move to this um, terrorism-related charges for youth in Ottawa. And obviously, we've seen an, an uptick in uh, in anti-Semitism. Obviously, we've got a lot of tension on our streets. We talked about it a good chunk on the show yesterday. But I'm seeing a lot of I- excuses, like teens are on the internet a lot. And I can't... I can't do this that easily. Timothy McVeigh wasn't on the Internet in 1995 when he bombed the Oklahoma City building. The Columbine killers in, in Colorado barely were. Lots of assassins in the 60s, 70s, and 80s were. So I don't. I, I feel like explaining that ends up excusing it. But are any of us surprised, Chloe, that a story like this was possible or probable based on the last 10 weeks that we get somebody underage planning almost, in essence, a terror attack? To be honest, I'm not surprised. During the election, I was I was seeing young people in like fight clubs. I live near High Park and I saw a bunch of young men shoplift from the LCBO then to go on and fight in the park. And it's one of those things where we need to really ask ourselves, what options are we giving young people when it comes to discussing violence and wanting to find de-escalation? I as someone who's in her thirties, it's just like, I grew up with the Columbine shootings, but never before have victims had smartphones to broadcast their last moments. And I think that's really eating at young people right now where they have like unlimited access to not only like violence by the perpetrators, but violence from the recipients. And, and unfortunately our governments and the adults in the room are not providing alternatives 
for de-escalating this. And this is why we're seeing young people respond with such violence, because that is the language of the adults in the room, and they are learning how to respond accordingly. Your story there is remarkable. So let me go back to it for a sec. Like, you're you're 30 years old. Are you just seeing this massive gap between you at 30 and you're a different 30? Like, again, you know, I, I think you're an incredibly impressive 30-year-old. There are some that aren't. But there are, are, there, are you seeing a huge gap between people who are 20, 21, and you're like, I, I'm just from a different planet than you based on on the gate on the on the age gap and what and the kind of things you're doing are you seeing that yes absolutely i from my professional experience i worked at george brown college i've worked at ryerson university and when i talk to these young people i can feel the palatable nihilism in them because they've grown up with this 24-hour cycle of being broadcasted addictive programming whether it's the beauty products, the drugs, the violence, like they are constantly in this echo chamber and they want to respond, but they're not given options because of their age. So you're watching these, it's really hard to say, but you're watching these young people essentially devolve because they're desperately trying to progress forward as adults, but we're treating them like they have no power. So this is what we're seeing. And I would really hope that as the adults in the room, we become more invested in confronting our peers in creating solutions for our youth. Yeah, we got to push on that. Steve, when I when I hear that, I think how how restrictive, if you will, our society was in the 70s and 80s. Can't see this movie because it's too violent. Can't listen to this album, right? The parent, uh, the parent music resource center, I think, was banning Prince albums and Twisted Sister albums in the mid 80s. Everything's available to the youth of today, and they know it also, and they're so easily able to seek it out compared to how we were. That is totally true, and I I do want to, I I thank Chloe for making that point. I think, uh, you know, she's in her 30s, I'm in my 60s, and it doesn't hurt for people in my generation to hear that point of view and and have a really good debate about the advisability of de-escalation and, and really giving young people a voice in a way that they don't right now. I appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Having said that, this kid was evil. Uh, th- th- this kid was planning to murder hundreds of people. This kid had managed to bring together. And again, this is all, he's innocent until proven guilty. And, you know, I think that first and foremost, we probably need to thank police authorities here uh, for uncovering this thing. The, the amount of detail and care and attention he had put into what could have been massive slaughter is very, very disquieting. And despite all of the things we've talked about here and the access to violent and terrible things that millions of young people in Ontario have, millions of young people in Ontario do not react this way. They find another way. So uh, while I take Chloe's point, this kid's an exception. And and we need the full force of the law if he's found guilty to come down on his head because this is not acceptable. But, Chloe, to your point as well, some of this is is how the media inflames an issue. And and, and maybe I'll turn the sword on myself. And sometimes it happens e- even here. I, I look at how we cover um, the incel movement. And I think we're almost giving this credence. We're almost giving this credibility when lonely men, sense of failure, can't get a date. And I'll say it can't get laid all of a sudden. No, 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 no. Then you look in the mirror and you say, what am I doing wrong? What can I do differently? Is this about me? As opposed to planning attacks, right, and planning uh, revenge and planning carnage. Like, I reject the whole idea that we've given credibility to this as a movement and not called it out for what it is sometimes. 
Well, I want to bring our attentions back to Gabriel, who died at Kiel Station. And I want to bring it back to the homeless man that was sworn by the young girls. Youth violence is escalating because we as the adults are not talking to young people about the consequences of violence. We're really outsourcing that to social media, broadcast media. I don't think parents are actually spending enough time with their kids and asking them, what are you seeing? And why? Like, what is happening and how do you want to react to this? And I honestly, like, I'm at High Park. I see young people every day. And even though they might not be wrapped up in terrorism, they're committing their small little violent acts all across the city. If you really want to see what's going on, there was an actual like Snapchat page where kids were posting robbing people. And this is something that is becoming embedded in youth culture because they're <sighs> taking on who we are as adults. As adults, we are very violent and we don't really talk about it. It's embedded in our culture and young people just mimic what they see. So it's like we, the 30 and up crowd, like we actually have to ask our peers who are politicians, like where do we want our young people to be going? Because they're, they're embodying this nihilism and it will get worse if we don't start treating them like our peers. Yeah. If it's so true and it feels like sometimes the world just doesn't slow down enough or stop enough. I can tell you that as a parent, I can tell you that even coming on the show and every day and, and maybe not talking about these massive, you know, five alarm fires uh, with our young people enough. But then we move on and we're in the Middle East and we're into provincial politics. I think you nailed it. We're into we're into all this stuff. I want to I, I want to move on from all these concerns <laughs> and pivot to um, Sankofa Square. Um, and Chloe, let's stick with you. I'm. I'm worried about the name and I'm worried it's getting attacked because the pro Dundas folks who didn't want the change, who will call it cancel culture, they're people too and they vote, they're going to attack this. But I'd make the case the committee did open themselves up. They took a word from a Ghanaian tribe that was also knee deep in the slave trade. All countries were centuries ago. We're going to have a tough time finding a great group of people or a great guy in 21st century standards from 700, 800 years ago. But I, I, I'm i finding people are angry as Chloe about the lack of public consultation here. Is that fair that people wanted a say in, in something that I guess means so much to them? Maybe I underestimated what Young Denda Square means to them and means to the city. Honestly, I don't really think the issue is the name. I think it's the condition of the square that people are more upset about. Mm. I find the city loves to give the black community decrepit space. And a great example is Reggae Lane. Reggae Lane is basically an alleyway and it doesn't have any cultural significance outside of its name. We want to see actual investment in fixing Dundas Square. It's decrepit. It's not a gathering space. So to call it Sankofa and to put all these positive connotations on a place where people do not gather does not make sense. That's interesting. Regulands off. Uh, you help me out because I to look it up fast. It's off Eglinton Ave is my recollection, but I don't know it well enough. Where whereabouts is it? Oh, party. Sorry, sorry. Did I say it again? Re- Reggae Lanes off. I think Eglinton. And yes. In little, in little Jamaica area, right? I'm getting a text right now about it. Yeah, it's like a parking lot alley. It's not really that great of a space. And I know that they've been trying to put like a farmer's market there, but it's like it's still an alley. These places need full programming. They need to be people centric. And right now, Dundas Square is not people centric. It's a cheap Times Square. Mm. Steve, how do, how do you view it? There was always going to be like a like we said, a push about uh, the name change. 
We've seen, obviously, Ryerson's change. We saw statues of John A. McDonald change. I, I'm into the conversation. I'm understanding we have to recognize our history, but we don't want to honor disreputable people anymore. There's a balancing act, though. Uh, it, it obviously it, it inflames people's emotions, maybe more in the last three or four days than I thought the name Sankofa Square would. Well, this is one of the reasons I love coming on with Chloe uh, on the think tank, because she gives me a lot to think about. And, and you know, I, I had not appreciated how much, I guess, uh, the notion of never mind the name. What's going on there? What about the programming? Why is it in such a state of disrepair? That's a great point to make. And uh, I'm glad she made it. I would say my generation is more focused on the name, though. And I, Greg, as opposed to an opinion, I have a bunch of questions here. I want to know who was on that committee. I want to know, as your guest from the University of Toronto in the last half hour suggested, was it really as broad-based and diverse as she, as she said it was? Uh, did they have a conclusion going into this thing before they had a process? In other words, did they know where they wanted to land? Was yeah. there enough community engagement? Uh, does Sankofa, as a name, does it really have anything to do with Toronto? This is the biggest square. This is the biggest, most arguably one of the most important squares in the whole greater Toronto area. And we're planning to name it after something that I'm not sure, uh, you know, I'm happy to be educated here, but I'm yeah. not sure has anything to do with Toronto history. Well, uh, what about naming it after the first black Toronto city councillor in 1840, William Abbott? What about the first black female Ontario cabinet minister, Zanina Conde? What about Nelson Mandela, who made trips to Toronto? What about Albert Jackson, the first black uh, letter carrier, post, uh, postal worker? Uh, from 150 plus years ago. There, there's lots of, if we want to do something with black history, it seems to me we have plenty of local examples that we could work with here. Uh, you knew about, you knew Lincoln Alexander really well. Like I know, well, and that's almost considered more like Hamilton area, but he was born in Toronto. He fought in World War II. He's the first Lieutenant Governor of Ontario. And Link's my, you know, being fellow Hamiltonians, Link's my favorite politician of all time. Okay. <laughs> you know, had they not had they not just named the law school at TMU after him, I would have said, uh, I would definitely would have said Link, but he just mm -hmm. got a, a law school named after him. You know, uh, I, this is raising, and I love this debate because yeah. I love history, and I'm glad we're discussing this, but are we really saying that, that colonial history is appalling and wrong and, and, and has to be called out, but somehow the, uh, excuse me, colonial slavery, slavery as a result of colonialism, bad but slavery as a result of wars that took place on an African continent uh, centuries ago, that's acceptable. And therefore, we're not concerned about the slavery angle in that. Okay, I'm open to an argument if you're saying that colonial slavery is worse, and this kind of slavery is not so bad, and therefore Sankofa works. Uh, but this, to me, I don't know, sounds to me like we need a lot more community engagement and a lot more understanding about why this name works when, I don't know, I don't see the connection to Toronto, but Okay, somebody educate me. I'm happy to learn. Chloe, I got about 45 seconds. Want, want the last word on it? I really want to address this difference between different levels of slavery, and I think that there's a bigger opportunity to discuss history. Yeah. Because, honestly, I imagine there are other Dundasses that have come through history that they could have replaced it with and just slapped a plaque on it, but this is the route they wanted to take. So. <laughs> I'm really hoping that they're actually going to set up some type of historical discussion or plaque there to explain to visitors why this is the way it is. Because here, here. as you can see, like naming without context, it doesn't provide a lot of room for discussion. Yeah, I hear that. Hey, you guys have uh, a wonderful rest of the week. I love today's discussion. Love, love, loved it. Thank you so much for giving us your time here. I know our listeners are engaged by it as well. Thanks again.